0: Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Dr. Tommy Keen, our systematic theologian, Dr. Grace Sutanto, our professor of Old Testament. Dr. Peter Lee, and also Dean of Students here, and we have a special guest today. It's going to be a treat for our audience. We get to talk to Dr. Aaron White, Senior Pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Charleston, Ohio, and also a PhD, a scholar of New Testament, particularly Luke and Acts and the Septuagint. He did his MDiv at Covenant Theological Seminary, but we're not going to hold that against him. He also did a PhD in New Testament at Trinity College in Bristol. And he's now come to teach a class here at RTS Washington this semester. He's going to be teaching a class on the Septuagint, And I would point everyone in the direction of that class if you're interested in following up on this conversation that we're about to have today, because that would be a great way for you to dive more deeply into this very interesting topic that is the Greek, the old Greek translations of the Old Testament. So welcome, Aaron. It's great to have you with us this morning.
1: Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. Good to be with all of you guys. I
0: should also add that Aaron is a pastor in the EPC along with me, so we have to always acknowledge the the mother denomination of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church when I have a fellow compadre uh, on the call with us. Let's start off the conversation like this. Aaron, can you tell us a little bit about how you got here? I, I, I suspect that while you were at Covenant Seminary, starting off there, training to become a pastor, you probably didn't think of yourself originally as a New Testament Septuagint scholar, or maybe you did. Can you walk us through a little bit uh, just of that process with you? How did you discern your call to be both a pastor, but a pastor scholar?
1: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of a, there's a lot of uh, angles uh, that kind of converge, uh, you know, a lot of paths here. So I actually came, out of the elca lutheran church a gospel proclaiming church uh here in columbus well nearby in columbus ohio i'm in south charleston which is about 40 minutes southwest from uh from columbus and uh so um all of my buckeyes out there go bucks um anyhow uh so we're we're all buckeyes here we uh uh, I, we grew up um, going to this church and be, I became a Christian there. I had all plans when I went to Covenant Seminary to end up going back into the ELCA in order to revitalize because I knew that I had some gifting in order to go into some of these challenging situations and uh, and work through some of those issues. But the Lord had other plans for me. So I, I've always felt a call to go into the pastorate. So that kind of answers that question. I've, uh, um, I always call myself a pastor scholar just so I even remind myself that the pastor takes privilege to the scholarship if ever I'm put in a corner and have to say no to something, right? We're always uh, presented with those no situations. What do I need to say no to next? Uh, I need to uh, be pastor first. Um, as Septuagint and Luke Acts goes, um, that, that's um, something a little bit different. When I was on staff of Campus Trusade uh, at Ohio University uh, down in Athens, Ohio, Um, I was befriended by one of the Greek professors uh, at Ohio University named Steve Hayes. And I ended up taking his class knowing that I was probably gonna go to seminary. And so we were learning Attic, Ionic Greek and uh, I found it very fascinating. And it was actually, he actually wrote this book here called Greek Before Christmas. You can see it's pretty tattered and well used, but the whole, whole premise of the title was he wanted you to be reading Greek in three months, like really fast. And, and that with very few resources. So really into my second, we we're on the quarter system at OU, not semester. In my second quarter, I was already sitting in the classics library around a big table reading Aristophanes, um, reading Homer. Um, and so I found that very exciting uh, it was oftentimes really puzzling as well, because if you know, if you've ever read Aristophanes, he's a satirist. And so I'm translating it and I'm wondering why is Socrates up in a basket and he's small? Well, like, I think I'm translating this wrong. Socrates, Socrates, you know, that type of thing. And uh, this has to be incorrect. Well, that's what it seems like it's saying. I go in the next day, we're reading, we would read the Greek out loud. And then we read out loud our translation, not not our written out translation. We'd actually translate it on the spot. And uh, and I was reaffirmed. No, that is correct. Actually, Socrates is up in a basket. Uh, he's being made fun of. And uh, the reason that I bring that up is I I went to seminary and this is not a knock against uh. Uh, Covenant Seminary or or Seminary Greek. Uh, I know the business of trying to get all these students at various levels through Greek really quick. But I lost this literary aspect of Greek. Uh, It started becoming not fun to do. And really getting into the Septuagint for me was to get into a broader array of genres. Uh, of different types of translation, as we'll talk about translation technique and those types of things. I remember one day I was looking at this word and I was like, how in the world does this decline? What's going on here? Oh, it's my old friend, the optative. I forgot the optative even exists. We don't ever have that really in the New Testament, but suddenly in the Septuagint, here it is again, because it's, uh, you know, in some books, You know, different translators uh, in each book of Septuagint, which we can talk about later. But you know, some are higher literary Greek, and so that was enjoyable for me. The Luke Act side was well. Luke uses the Septuagint when he's referring to the Old Testament, so that was the avenue that got me in there. And I have a lot more to say about that, but I feel like I've already taken up too much of your time. But I mean, uh, when when it comes to that explanation, but definite call to pastoral ministry, but a, a huge call to really just Stay in Greek as a language and a culture, uh, ancient Greek.
0: So, yeah, I want to come back to the literary aspects of the Septuagint because that's fascinating. But before we do, before we leave this, you and I over the fall got to participate in a couple of uh, conversations and sort of panels with our with your presbytery about the life of the pastor scholar. And I'd like to put that question to you how are you as a pastor think about pastors who are listening to this how how do you as a pastor protect your scholarly life and um how do you as a scholar protect your pastorly life maybe i should say in other words how how do you how do you have a balanced life have you figured it out yet um and, and and is there any advice you'd offer our listeners
1: well, you know, when you turn on Siri to take you to a location and then you get to that location and it says you've arrived, does that bother anyone else? I mean, it really bothers me because I I'm, No, I'm not, I've not arrived. Um, so that I always tell that to my congregation, I've not arrived. Um so this is like a, a a trial by error still. But I think for me, I was at a church um, when I was finishing up my PhD research. And they kind of tolerated the fact that I was a scholar, but they would much rather me go to not theological conferences, but conferences on how to develop a small group or something like that. Um, How to do programs in church they'd much rather me do that Um, when I when I came to this job. uh, This call, however you want to put it, I I really front ended that I am a scholar as well, it also helped that there is a missiologist and theologian on the search committee. It also helped that the search committee chair is very interested in theology and and really embrace that side. Um, So they understood what I was coming into. So I'd say, first of all, you need to be honest with everybody about who you are. Uh, So if you do want to do scholarship and you're in the pastorate, uh, you need to tell people about that. I mean, that's that's something you do. And um, I'm fortunate in a village context like this, like right now, nobody's knocking at my door. Uh, And I didn't have to tell my administrative assistant to guard my door. It's just that people aren't stopping in at the church. So I I, I get an amazing amount of latitude uh, with my time now i i can 't abuse that in the sense of like i 'm just going to sit here and clo- cloister up and read and write for the next three weeks i i couldn 't do that anyway. my temperament uh, if you guys do disc analysis i 'm like high d high i uh, my my myers briggs is like this guy can 't stop talking to me. you know what I mean that type of thing i 'm very extroverted. I need to get out, I need to be with people, I need to be in the community, but uh, I also if I want to take time, I can take that time to to read and write. It's more, it's more boundaries on my own heart, my own mind, like, okay, this week, I need to sit and prepare for this thing, or I need to write, like, I just finished a New Testament epistles, uh, write up. That was basically me just sitting there for one week and almost just stream of consciousness writing. And so, so I have to mentally prepare myself to do that. So that, that, that's a little bit of that. I'm trying to think from the pastor angle, I don't have as much of a problem because that's very natural to me. Yeah, uh, I, I I don't I don't need to encourage myself to get out of my office. I actually need to encourage myself to get into my office. Uh, you know that that's kind of the direction I go. Like uh, for for example, uh, every Tuesday while it's warm out, I go golfing with guys in town, um, and that's ministry. And it's what I call no agenda relationships. I mean, I go golfing with these guys because I enjoy it. I enjoy their presence somehow the lords kind of use that like some of these guys who would never darken the door of a church come to church i never invited them um I, as a pastor i don't like inviting people to church i think it comes off a lot of unintentional baggage um so i'm pretty low sell but you know I, I that's relational ministry that's me getting out and doing that but then there's other weeks where I have to shut it down i can't go this week i've really got too much to do and and that kind of is a bummer i, I i'd rather go to lunch with them and go, you know, play nine holes or something. So, hope that yeah. makes sense.
0: No, that's great and because you do have to be aware of your own personal strengths and weaknesses as you're kind of evaluating okay, where do I what do I need to protect and uh, you know, what what do I do naturally?
2: Aaron, hey, I appreciate uh, everything you just shared about the pastor scholar life that you live and um I, I guess the question I have is somewhat related to a question that that I was asked during my um well, more of my student years during my Ph.D. program is, you know, my area of study like Scott's was in uh, Semitic languages, dead Semitic languages. Uh, mm-hmm. These aren't. Uh, so the Hebrew we study is not the Hebrew that's being spoken currently. You know, these are ancient documents. And and one of the questions that uh, that I often was asked was, how uh, do we integrate that with ministry? And uh, it was, you know, it's always kind of challenging because the two areas seem so, you know, mutually exclusive. Is there any overlap at all? Have have you found what you do in terms of the academic side of your life in in any way helpful for what you do in the pastoral side of, of your work?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of comfortable in saying I've come to the place of comfort saying that some of my scholarship has absolutely nothing to do with anybody other than my own, own enjoyment. I mean, like so, some of this is, I, I just love to do it. Um, you know, and, and, and you kind of had that Eric little effect, you know, I feel God's pleasure when I'm running type thing. Um, and so I, I don't want to be too, I know that you're not asking this, Peter, but I don't want to be too spiritual about like, this has to have everything to do with my ministry. Uh, I would say that the main thing that has helped me is in a couple areas. Number one, it's like I've talked to even I was talking to my youth director about this the other day. I said one of my areas that I've grown one of the areas I've grown in the most is asking the right questions. And I think going through my doctoral research it wasn't as much uh, about the answers uh, as it was formulating the right questions. And I think that's absolutely um, helpful when you're interacting with people, when you're exegeting the context. I mean, I, I, for example, I never preach the same sermon twice. I just don't. I might, I might preach the same passage more than once. Like I think I've preached the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts six times since I've been here, just by chance. It was uh, completely unintentional, but they're all different sermons. That's because my context is always changing, and the people in the pews are always not not always changing. But you you, you gather what I'm saying. So, uh, asking the right question was huge. I also think just the um, the amount of knowledge that I've been able to gain in this process through doing an MDiv uh, through doing like so uh, my BA was in social work uh, so a lot of that practitioner side when I went to seminary actually uh, used a lot of my time in like really digging deep into exegesis into theology and and so I, I didn't take as much time in the practitioner side uh, and I was comfortable with that and then in my my uh, PhD research I would actually take seasons off of Luke acts and try to publish in other areas just to broaden myself. So like, actually my first, uh, published article was on Kalaminos in first Corinthians six, you know, on, on what does it mean to be joined together in Paul? So, so it was, it was totally, it was totally outside of my area. So I wanted to broaden myself. And what that allows me to do in the pastorate is spend a lot more time among the people, because, my sermon prep time is very, very small, uh, like uh three hours on Friday. And then I write down my sermon Sunday morning. Uh I don't actually write my sermon until Sunday morning. I get uh I get enough to get my notes to my communication director so she can make slides. Uh and then Sunday morning I I I write down all of my data so i hope that makes sense because i think that that's those have been two practical areas we're asking the right questions and then also being able to uh work more efficiently okay that's fascinating i
0: love hearing about other people's methods on on preaching and how they put together the sermon because i find as all of us get more experience we kind of settle in usually you start with whatever you learned to do when you were in your homiletics class and then you kind of settle into your own style and that will even change. And I've noticed even just recently, my, my style of of sermon production has changed in the way that I write down everything. And and when I write it down during the week, and uh, it's fascinating to hear about other people and their approach. So thanks Aaron. Let's move this conversation then around to the Septuagint or the old Greek and that itself is an important distinction to make. We had Will Ross and Greg Lanier on here uh, in the fall and talked a, a bit about, you know, what what it means to talk about the Septuagint, because it's not one unified body of literature. But I want to come at it from your point of view in terms of what sort of grabbed your interest, because you, you, you've commented already that there are multiple translators in the Septuagint, right? You're not dealing with one unified work that's kind of come to us down out of heaven, right? Um, or out of Alexandria, perhaps. Uh, but but you, we, we are, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with uh, a lot of different work. And yet, even within that, you can discern a literary diversity in a literary style amongst some of the authors some of the translators that you're working with so can you help us take us a little bit farther down that road that you started earlier when you said you you kind of noticed you know when you saw the use of the optative in the uh in the septuagint you know how did you how, how did you sort of move into or find a particular interest in the septuagint coming at it from a new testament point of view
1: right so um I did an independent study with uh, Greg Perry, who now is a uh, vice president of Third Mill. And uh, he was a professor I worked for at, at Covenant. And um, I wanted to do, I just, the Septuagint just, again, seemed interesting to me. It was almost, it's almost like that undefinable love that you, know, y- you have for certain things. You're like, I don't really know why. I just was really drawn to it. Uh, and so, I did an independent study with him, and he was a Luke Acts scholar. So he said, "Well, let's do a uh, let's do an independent study on the Old Testament's presence in Luke Acts, uh, specifically from the Septuagint." I said, "Okay, great." And it was actually just kind of clumsy. I don't know if you know how jazz musicians learn how to how to become jazz musicians, but basically they they're good at their instrument, so they've gotten a proficiency, and then they basically just uh chart out and mimic all the standards. And once they've done that, then they can start riffing and doing their own stuff. So you, you need to kind of plagiarize before you start doing your own stuff. Yeah. I, that word can I, I mean that rather don't, loosely. don't
3: say that. Don't say that. <laughs> Students do not plagiarize, please. As your academic I just you to know that. That's he's
2: he's true. he's imitating with respect is is what he's doing. There's nothing
1: new under the sun. Um, We we uh, like to
0: say fake it till you make it. But yeah, that's right. true enough.
1: Well, I I think uh, I think Dale Allison says uh, we we, as theologians and biblical scholars, we never give you anything new. We just remind you. So um, I think that's a good way to go about it. But nevertheless, the, the point I'm making is that in this class, I had to I had to come up with a research paper and I was really intrigued by this mysterious Uh, And it's where everybody goes. I mean, if you pull open any uh, introduction to the Septuagint, you're always going to get a discussion on this now, I've found, uh, is Amos 9 and Acts 15, because it's very bizarre what's going on there. Um, A lot of stuff, a lot of action. And so I picked up uh, Richard Baucom's article. Now, if you want to get some street cred with your British scholar friends, don't say Richard Baucom. It's not Richard Balcom; it's Balcom. Uh, just a sidebar. I've I, I was sternly corrected at one point, <laughs> uh, but Richard Balcom he uh, he writes on this in a couple of articles, and I found it to be very interesting. And really, my first paper was really to dig in how into how he did it, and so really, I gave an exegesis of really how Richard Balcom went through that, uh, and then for me, I was starting to become a little interested in why. There's two Amos quotations in Acts, and I wondered to myself, well, I wonder if they have any relationship with each other. And I started realizing in the context of those quotations, there was a lot of interacting words, especially a a strepo stemmed words. These stems uh, are turning, God turning away and judgment and turning towards and blessing. And uh, that was very interesting. And so I started digging into that aspect of the Greek. So basically the full flowering ended up being my dissertation, looking at the 12 prophets in uh, the book of Acts, because I picked up uh, Paul House's book on the unity of the 12 and it just blew my mind. I was like, I've never thought of the, the, the 12 prophets being one unified source. And uh, so then I started considering all four quotations in Acts and the language that they all share as a very key moment for uh, in a key tool that Luke uses to move the redemptive historical trajectory of Acts through uh, Acts 15. So I might be giving you a little bit more than you asked about, but that that was where I started becoming interested is uh, just in some independent studies and and digging into certain aspects of the Septuagint.
3: I'd be interested, and I, I'm guessing our Old Testament guys would be too, on on taking that the idea of taking the 12 prophets as a, a unified work. In, in your dissertation, do you, are you arguing that Luke assumes that, that they are one, one book? And if so, how does that change then? How, how would that theoretically change Luke's processing of the book, the, re, the reading of the
2: prophets?
1: Right, so I use kind of um, a concept of construal, you know, where you're construing these these thoughts, you're you're making them into a thought. So, like, um, you know, to, in order to demonstrate a point, and uh, you know, no matter if you take the Hebrew Bible order of the twelve prophets, which uh, just to explain that a little bit, as as many of you are aware, the first six books of the twelve prophets in the Hebrew Bible are in a different order than they are in our Greek Old Testament and uh, there's been a lot of scholarship um, that will show that there's linking words or words that will uh, change because of that that ordering in order to pull us through in a certain theological trajectory and uh, in, in the Septuagint, there is a Duke Scholar in the 80s. I think Barry Allen Jones, who who was talking about this, but also brought in the possible uh, evidence of Qumran that Jonah was at the end of the Twelve Prophets, which I find kind of compelling. I think there's some challenges there, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, nevertheless, um, the, the thing is is we have we have a different theological ordering and that's how a lot of people would argue in the Septuagint is they're in a different order because there's a different theological emphasis on the nations, especially. But no matter if we take it in that order or the Hebrew Bible order, there's one theme that is consistent and that is the day of the Lord. There's actually only one kind of failed reference to the Messiah in the 12 prophets. The The emphasis, however, is on the day of the Lord. Uh, Now, I'm sure all of you are aware that Pentecost demonstrates one thing, right? And that is that in Joel 3, 1 through 5, as we have it in our Septuagint or our Hebrew Bible, Joel 2, 28 through 32, uh, we are seeing from Peter's explanation that Jesus is Lord, the Lord that Joel expected. And this is the day of the lord these are these last days that's the change that that peter makes at the beginning of that joel quotation is these are those days that joel was talking about and so so luke's job then in acts is to demonstrate that jesus is lord and he does that in these very important moments with minor prophets quotations because if you flip back to your bible Uh, you will see that at each moment, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, at each one of those moments is a minor prophet's quotation. And so Luke construes these into Joel, Amos, Habakkuk, Amos, in order to demonstrate his theological trajectory that Jesus is Lord over all nations uh, with a a, a multi-ethnic, multinational mission. That's it in a nutshell. It's a little bit longer in my dissertation, but Um, That's that's it in a nutshell. You
0: wrote on that too, right? I think this was, is this the Prophets Agree? Is this the publishing of your dissertation with Brill? Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, I did. Yeah, Brill Biblical Interpretation Series. I've also published uh, a handful of articles on uh, the Amos Quotations and certain aspects of that the apostolic decree and its relationship to uh the amos 5, uh, amos 9 and acts 15 decree that james makes and yeah so i have i've have, on atla you can just look up my name and it has all those articles in there
0: if you want to delve into it more deeply i think this this topic is fascinating because as um i know everybody on this call knows but some in our audience may not is that you know, the 12 prophets don't Show up separately in the ancient world. Uh, that yeah. if you look back, even the way that they're listed, you know, I think Ben Sira they're listed mm-hmm. as one book, and in the mm-hmm. uh, you know in if you find all the ancient uh, manuscripts of it, apart from like the Pesher and that sort of thing, the, the the commentaries on them, they're always together as one mm-hmm. book. And I thought actually, even teaching this, we're talking through this in, in Isaiah to Malachi. One thing that's interesting is that if you go through Calvin, Calvin's preaching through the 12, he m- maybe unconsciously, but he reads Amos in light of Joel as if Amos is reading Joel, which doesn't really make sense unless you're reading it canonically. In other words, in other words, you're reading Amos as coming after Joel and being a theological reflection on Joel, which might be kind of a natural reading, but you know i don't think calvin says now i'm going to switch over and start doing a canonical reading at this Mm -hmm. point and yet it is kind of a natural it's maybe a natural way of interpreting the book so it's interesting that he even falls into that i think without maybe being aware of what he's doing so the idea of reading these all kind of like uh you know you're reading the psalter which is a book of you know compiled works by different authors but compiled in a way that's theologically compelling you know it's it's a it's a fascinating Mm -hmm. idea and uh and 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 I love how you're you're looking at Luke Acts and how uh, that author is maybe receiving this book as a canonical whole. That's that's a fascinating
1: mm-hmm. idea. Well, I think it's I think it's very interesting that you bring that up because it is passed on that way. I think you have Ben Sira uh, making statements like that, but even in the New Testament, you have I mean, it, I, I think as a greater almost doctrine of Scripture, uh, you know, in canon statement, you know, even Paul. In his epistles is referring to the scriptures. You know, there must be collections here that we have. I mean, uh, un- unfortunately, there are, are moments in Septuagint scholarship where we'll, we'll talk so much about the fluidity of collections and all this and that, we'll lose any sense that there was any collection at all. Um, but, you know, Ben Sierra, even you know, noting these these collections is important. Even to the the twelve prophets being one unit of a greater uh, collection is is uh, um, important to observe.
3: I'd love to pick up on some of the things that you've said about translation. I found it fascinating your that kind of that opening illustration that you did about little Socrates in the basket and uh, and those kinds of things. Because a, qu- a question I often get is like, so when will I just be able to? Read Greek or Hebrew. Well, I, I got a question the other day. When will I be fluent in hmm. in Greek? And I kind of chuckled um, because you know I don't feel like I'm fluent in in these languages because you don't have a you don't have an interlocutor that you can really talk with on uh, on the fly, which which seems implied by the language of fluency. But on the other hand, that those kinds of subtleties, the subtleties of irony and satire and you know the double entendre, that those kinds of things that we in our native language pick up intuitively are really challenging in tra- you know in translation in, in a language that's not and a culture and a context that's not your native culture and context. So I, I don't know what I'm asking, but like advice there,. Um, mm. Where, where does that show up in scripture? What are some other challenges associated with that? What would you, how would you direct people in kind of getting that level of fluency with the languages that they can pick up on some of these kinds of translation issues?
1: Well, so it, for me, it comes up most often when, uh, you know, I, I might have a member stop by my, my study and they see that I have old manuscript facsimiles and they're like, hey, can you read that? And I'll say, yes, I can read that with great care and a lot of time. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like I'm just like, because I I have like uh, about four years, five years ago, whenever it was, I was in Cambridge and uh, I went over with a crew from Tyndale House to the, uh, the uni library and uh, they had a bunch of Qumran stuff on display. I didn't even know that was going to happen. I was just blown away. I was like, this is, this is just the best mm-hmm. and you have this cat standing there like sight reading these yeah. manuscripts and like this guy is like elon musk intelligent like you know so so i i i always like front it with people like i can't do that i can but it'll take me time uh some people might say can you speak greek and i'm like no because it's a dead language i mean we have modern greek And we don't know how they, you know, we pronounce Greek. We teach students how to pronounce Greek according to how Erasmus thought it was supposed to be uh, pronounced. But then you'll talk to a modern Greek speaker and they're like, you're butchering the language. Uh, Please stop doing that. Uh, And because I actually had in one of the churches, I did an internship with a a woman who could speak Greek and she sat there weekly with me and read through biblical Greek with me to pronounce it the right way. (laughs) She <laughs> couldn't stand listening to it anymore. Um, but I, I would also say to the, uh, to your point a little bit, and I think this is a pastoral, uh, note is we need to read the Bible with some more humanity. Like we need to allow our people to read the Bible with humor. We need to allow our people to read the Bible with irony. We need to allow our people to write, uh, read the Bible with flesh and blood. Like these people were going through something like uh, yesterday, I had the honor of um, <laughs> preaching on Ananias and Sapphira. Whew. Yeah, that was fun. I don't, I don't normally get nervous about preaching texts, but that one made me nervous. Yeah. And I, I'm guessing that when Ananias dropped dead in front of Peter, Peter was surprised. We only get uh, with him uh, in Sapphira the prediction that she's going to die because he just saw it happen. But I, I'm guessing that he was a little surprised when that happened. That's okay. Uh, or uh, as I was uh, talking about the the contrast between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, I said, Paul, you need to remember the apostle Paul was one of the most brilliant uh, and possibly notorious, infamous, famous scholars of his time, you know, and um when he got caught in the pickle later in Acts between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he said, Oh, and what about the resurrection? And then they both start fighting with each other and he slips out the back door. Like there's something kind of funny about that. Like, that's pretty brilliant. And and he knew what he was doing. And he totally just like, yeah, you know, it just played a trick on him. I think of like, you know, as I was talking to Scott earlier on the phone, it's almost like a you know, Jim you know, punking Dwight, you know, it's like, it's, you know, uh, it's that moment where he does this thing and, and we could, we, we need to be okay with that. We need to encourage our people to read the Bible with, with flesh and blood. Uh, I think of different, uh, things that I enjoyed, like, uh, in ancient Greek, we talk about the hilasterion, the hilasterion is the sacrificing place so we're we're always debating about what, what is this hilasterion uh in in paul but then then you have this thing the gymnasium uh the frontisterion uh in uh in ancient greek it was kind of the, the thinking place the place where you go and think together with all the unclean's that's a aristophanes will talk about all these philosophers who don't bathe and and don't eat pr- appropriately and that's where they go just to think uh, so it's the thinking place. And then you have these people talking about the Hilisteron. Oh, it's a it's the sacrificing place. You know, it's and so you get these clunky ways to translate things, but it's just it's just very literal and straightforward. So um, there you I go, think, this, some things.
3: I think of uh in in Luke Acts, the uh the incident with Eutychus falling out. There's so much humor there that I think we that we miss of you know, the incense and it was late at night and and Paul
1: was boring him to death. Like, yes, Paul like, so, so I'm standing there preaching yesterday. Uh, at the, We have two services and I'm preaching at the first one. And I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I'm, I'm about half awake. And then I find out like half of my congregation is feeling the same way. I have no idea why, but all these guys are falling asleep. And you know what? I'm okay with that. <laughs> I, I would probably be doing the same thing yeah. Uh and and Paul even put somebody to sleep well, then and then he, had to raise them from the dead. I mean, so you know from I, the dead, and then he goes on and preaches <laughs> some more. <I> just, <laughs> yeah. Dude, Paul, get a clue.
2: No yeah. lessons
0: learned. No lessons
1: learned from Paul. <laughs> no,
2: he's he's absolutely determined to. I mean, whether you like it or not, uh, I'm gonna get this thing <laughs> out of my system, you know. Even some of the language, right, Aaron? And I mean, there is a, a few vocabulary words in New Testament Greek that I suspect even in Septuagint, that's a little shocking. I mean, if you we caught one of our children saying some of the things that Paul said, we might be kind like, of, no, we don't do that. <laughs> we that's don't right. do that, but it's 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 clearly there. And it's, it's there. and you know, our modern readers obviously don't appreciate that because it's obviously been um softened in translation. Mm. Yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm i right with you there on, on that, Peter. I mean, it was even like the other day I was watching Seinfeld and my, um, because I, I committed to watch it cover to cover uh, on Netflix. And uh, I think something along the lines happened and my three-year-old daughter repeated back what they said and i was like whoa i didn't even know you're listening to that and then i think she said the word again yesterday and we had to have a little bit longer talk about it so yeah i i'm with you but the bible presents those moments too and and it's
2: got a lot of dynamics in there it's it's definitely uh, r-rated in some some moments so and, and that's yeah. something i genuinely do appreciate your thoughts on that just because uh you know there's something that i think we as uh that that um moderns when they read the bible in in the church context of church they they find something just inappropriate about humor in the bible you know god can't Mm -hmm. be funny there's just something not right about that and and for that reason you know it's not sacred it's not uh serious and and there's a certain Mm -hmm. misconception that we have that certain things can only be associated with god so when we come across something like you know paul being boring and putting people to sleep it, it's hard not to, I mean, it's funny and it's hard not to laugh, but we don't laugh because we think it's something that's unwholesome when it's very real, very human. And, and, uh, and I've definitely, you know, appreciate uh, that, uh, your, your sentiments and your thoughts on that. That's great.
1: Yeah, I mean, what it reminds me of, and I don't want to impinge on Gray's, uh, you know, uh, territory, but this whole, uh, this whole debate that we get it uh, wrapped up in in our uh, tradition on the affect, uh, affections of God, and oh well, God can't do this, or you know, and all this and that, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, I don't know, I. Sometimes I feel the conviction of God that feels pretty like there's there's emotion going on there, and uh, yeah. So I know I'm giving a very terrible reading of that whole debate, but uh, I I just yeah I think that there's a lot more there um, that we need to uh, talk about. I mean, especially with our frozen chosen, you know, um, my first service being my traditional service. Uh, the loudest uh, verbal response I've gotten from them recently was when I was talking about the lame man in acts three and, and in acts four it says he was over the age of 40. And I got audible groans. Oh, that's not old. I, I, and I, and I, I stopped my sermon. I laughed. I said, that's the most you guys have verbally responded to me in months. <laughs> my second service, I get a lot more amens. One time uh, a guy yelled amen so loud at me. I about like, I didn't know what to do next. I was like, I guess I was good, you know? So yeah, that's a, that's a a rabbit trail, but for what it's worth.
0: Aaron, we were having a perfectly nice conversation. Then you had to bring in systematic theology and impassibility debates. I mean,
1: now we all have have to
0: retreat back to our corners.
1: I want to Gray to say something. He was trolling Gray because Gray's been so quiet.
3: Clean, clean us up, Gray. Clean us up.
4: I mean, I got nothing to say. I mean, all this Septuagint stuff, us theologians, we just care about history and <laughs> thoughts, no. I'm here quoting wow. Bob and stuff and this, the stuff about the Bible. I mean, I don't know about all that. Well,
1: Gray, <laughs> I will say that uh, when Scott and I were talking earlier, he did confess when he was in seminary, he thought that your field and mine were dead fields and now they're two of the more popular fields. So, uh, to to his uh, his credit on humility, he's, he's realized that you know we we hold very important areas uh or or I don't know, mantles. I'm not sure how to put it. Is that fair, yeah, Scott? No,
0: yeah, this this is an example of me not being able to predict where academic interests are headed because I would have thought Septuagint and Bovink was uh was, was kind of hit its peak back in our seminary days. And then little did I know that it would be all the rage. Uh, some twenty years later, so mm. it's great. It's mm-hmm. a good thing, but I didn't see it coming. So don't don't bet on my stocks.
2: Yeah, yeah we might
4: cycle back to the Old Testament, though. I've got a feeling it's going to come right back around
2: to you guys. No, it never will. It's never been in vogue. It never will be. Sadly, it's only for the you know. And and it, this is the reason why we have to constantly fight for the integrity of our discipline. Well, right. doesn't Richard Pratt? He calls it the Better Testament.
0: Yeah, but he also either? he also introduces himself as a professor of irrelevance because he teaches the Old Testament. So. <laughs>
1: That's funny. Oh,
0: jeez. <laughs> okay, uh, let me ask a question, um, Aaron. In terms of when you're going back to the Septuagint, okay, I, I think our, our audience is going to say, all right, so why is this such a big deal, though? Isn't it just a Greek translation? I've already got the Hebrew. Why do I need the Greek? You've touched on a few issues like, for instance, canonical order, and you, you mentioned how the Septuagint of the Twelve is a different order. And, and interestingly, is um, you know, if you look at the Septuagint order versus the Hebrew order, the Septuagint order, for instance, has all of the oracles against the nations grouped together in the middle with Obadiah, Jonah, and Nahum in the very middle of the book, which is kind of the way you find it in, I don't know, Isaiah and Ezekiel. And in the Septuagint of Jeremiah, you know, you find the the oracles against the nations in the middle of the books, not Mm -hmm. at the end or not dispersed throughout, you know, so it kind of raises some interesting questions. Is that perhaps, you know, reflecting a kind of theological interest that maybe the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text doesn't have? I don't want to sit on that topic, though, because you've already already touched on it. Where are there other places where the Septuagint is going to help us exegetically, you know, as we're understanding, or maybe kind of. Cast some of the teaching of the Old Testament in a different light. Is there a place? Is there there are clear places that come to mind apart from Amos nine, where you're really going to see the Septuagint being an exegetical value, having exegetical value to the Old Testament interpreter?
1: Well, yeah, specifics. I mean, you know, trying to think of how to answer that best. I mean, I I think for the um, the day to day pastor seminary student, I think that the main thing that we first need to wrap our minds around is the presence of the Old Testament in the New Testament. I think finding specific theological nuances or exegetical nuances and differences in the Old Testament between the Greek and the Hebrew is is pretty far down the road. Uh, I think we first need to say Uh, your congregation member will at some point open up their ESV Bible and wonder why Paul is quoting words that aren't said in the Old Testament part of their Bible. I I, I think that that's the first apologetic thing that you're going to run into is why are the words so different? And, And of course, you know, then you get into some hairy areas where you say, well, Paul was reading the Greek Old Testament, but the editors at Crossway thought it would be better for you to read the Hebrew Old Testament. Right? So, so you can see I, I intentionally put it that way because it, 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 it starts getting a little thorny. Um, and, and people in our day and age who we have an evangelical uh, church in America that is very biblically illiterate. And uh, I saw it happen in spades in college. These state U professors could easily undermine the faith of of students coming in because they had been I, I'm getting a little off here, but this is a little bit of my my soapbox is because they had been giving been given the fun programs and the therapeutic gospel uh, all throughout uh, their time in church, if they were going to church. And then suddenly this state you professor comes in and asks them something really simple. Like, why do you have a Hebrew old Testament when all the new Testament authors were, uh, you know, quoting Greek, you know, shouldn't you have the Greek old Testament? And then suddenly they're like, never thought of that before. And now I don't believe the Bible's true. You know what I mean? These real dramatic, like, you know, swings, uh, I think, uh, as a, as a plug for, uh, one of your colleagues, uh, um, Mike Kruger's uh, Surviving Religion 101 is an excellent uh, book. And not, not exactly treating that question in particular, but questions that are common, very, very common. Actually, when I sent my college students out, I said, uh, just remember, I'm not saying this arrogantly, but so for your assurance, your pastor has published in the same journals and monograph series as your professors will have, okay? And what that means is when they ask you a hard question uh, it's maybe not as hard as it might seem. And it's maybe not as new as they're going to make it sound. Okay. So, you know, we had that conversation and um, I guess, getting back to your, uh, your, your original question is that some of those big issues are really where we start. We really start with, why do I have a Hebrew Old Testament? Uh, Why don't I have a Greek Old Testament? Um, well, you know, and then we might dig deeper. Were all New Testament authors using, um, you know, uh, Ralph's, uh, you know, were they, were they all using this uh, this composite one? Was this what they had flopped open in front of them? Um, you know, no, that's not the case. Um, you know, Matthew was quoting the Hebrew. Well, was he, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of questions there. So for the pastor, it's going to be asking a lot of those intertextuality questions. Uh, Even first, before we even get to the like subtle nuances.
0: You touched on a really interesting point too, that Paul and the apostles are lifting up this translation of the Hebrew and saying, thus saith the Lord, Mm -hmm. Um, which is an important reminder to us when we're holding up our English Bibles and saying, thus Mm -hmm. saith the Lord. We're we're recognizing that God's word can be communicated cross-linguistically. And yep. cross-tradition, uh, which is unique, actually. It's unique as a Christian thing. You don't have to go back. You know, it's, it's not the, the tenet of the faith that you have to have read it in the Hebrew and the Greek, right? Mm-hmm. While we can mm-hmm. still hold to this idea of the original writings being uh, inspired, we can communicate these via translation. And, and the use of the Septuagint in the New Testament shows us that.
1: Yeah, and and I always appreciate your explanation on that, Scott. I know you've had it. Uh, ha- I've had you explain that or say it to me a couple times, but that is important. And and as I, I'll remind my congregation, you know, John Calvin, the father of our tradition, would say God speaks to us in baby babble. You know, he condescends uh, to speak in our language, and therefore, in our doctrine of Scripture, we can translate. You know, I I, I always tell people I put it this way. If if the Apostle Paul was to stand at the church in Ephesus and open up a Hebrew Bible and start preaching from the Hebrew Bible, it would make as much sense as me opening up a Nestle Allen Greek New Testament and preaching from that in front of my English-speaking congregation. Uh, that, that's kind of the similarity. So, so it, it's highly unlikely, just practically speaking, that any of these New Testament authors were opening up anything Hebrew. I mean, they were, at best, they might have some stuff in Aramaic, um, Mm. but more likely the lingua franca, you know, the business language, international business language was coin a common Greek. So that's what we would expect to be seeing there. Mm. Um, And I think that gets us pretty far down the road on some of the bigger questions that people are gonna be asking more commonly.
4: All I'm hearing right now is that systematic theology justifies the study of the old testament, the Septuagint, and the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. That's all I'm hearing. That's you guys it. always have to do that. I have
1: I have a theologian friend and he just he'll just debate me. I, I just like, can't we just say the Bible's truthful? We have to say it's inerrant. You know what I mean? Am I allowed to say that on this podcast? Um, and you then can. he'll get all like he'll get all foamy <laughs> about it. And, no, I'm just, it's your job. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean
0: so that class is canceled now, the uh, <laughs> class.
1: The, no. the Bible is uh plenarily and verbally inspired and inerrant. right?
2: Maybe. In
0: <laughs> Well, Gray, you've always got to bring it back around to uh to the systematics, don't you?
4: Well, all that's, I was just agreeing with what Aaron was saying. I mean, he was talking about how, you know, the church hasn't really done well in catechizing. I think that's how I'm, I'm hearing it. The church hasn't done well in reminding us that we have this wealth of resources about our doctrine of scripture, that it's not a simplistic doctrine. When we talk about inerrancy, we're not saying things like, you know, the Bible cannot have any textual variants for it to be true, though the Bible doesn't use different languages for it to be true. But the doctrine of scripture, as historically articulated, has always yep. meant the use, the providential use of um, the author's personalities, sources and their own research. In actually, God is superintending that whole process. It's not as if God is dictating, not as if there's a heavenly language that remains unchangeable. And it's one of the distinctives of the Christian doctrine of inspiration that makes it very complex. And um, people forget that. And people think that there's a caricature of it out there. And so when that straw man is falling down, they think that they got to deconstruct their whole sense of Christian identity. And that's completely false.
0: Yeah. This, this comes yeah. back to this doctrine of organic inspiration too, right? I mean, this idea right. that you just articulated very well, but you know, we're not, we're not, like Muslims, and we're not like you know Mormons, we believe that the Word was articulated through human beings who are inspired in their own time and place and are culturally and linguistically informed, and that God's Word can still be communicated um, as you said in 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 baby Babel, Aaron, or you know in this condescension of syntax and lexicon, you know that that the uh, the this, this system that that somehow commutes uh, communicates these these eternal truths and this it's an amazing thing it's a glorious thing and yet i do think yeah a lot of christians don't understand it and so when they get to that religion 101 class
4: mm-hmm. they
0: they they realize they had a, a simplified view of it Aaron and the way i think of it is that they say well if my pastor didn't know about this then what else did he not know about
1: that's a huge assumption people can make too. That you need to be uh, as pastors careful of is they can think you didn't know anything about it when you did all along, and it's just because right. you decided not to talk about it. Uh, yeah. You need to find uh, comfortable and understandable and digestible uh, ways to talk about some of these things. Like, for instance, if I come to John eight, I'm not not talking about the the woman at or the woman at the well or the anyhow. <laughs> I find it. I actually think it, my, my conviction is that that was actually historical. I actually think that happened. And I think that there's something teachable in it, but I, I want to talk about textual criticism. I want to talk about how that's okay. And we can talk about that. And we do this because we care about what God actually said to us. Yeah. And, and so we need to take those moments and, and uh, actually do it a little aside and and invite people into the moment of questioning some things.
3: Yeah, I think, I think a lot of times pastors are so afraid of putting a stumbling block in front of the people or or maybe, you know, if you bring up textual criticism, hey, maybe John 8 wasn't in the original uh, text or something like that, that they're going to they're going to put a stumbling block, they're going to uh, create a theological issue or something like that. And so we avoid those topics. But then that just leaves our people, especially our our youth who are going off to Bible, co- you know, going off to college and things like that, leaves them vulnerable as if they because they never heard about these things. Uh, we, we don't do that with our kids. We don't send them off to college without talking about sex and drugs and all of these kinds of things. And we shouldn't do it with our sheep either as if this that- is off that we can't talk about.
1: That's the metaphor right there, Tommy. Is it's you're sheltering your people, and sheltering never works. Um, you know, like that's why I'm a firm believer in sending my kids to uh, secular local schools uh, because they get the opportunity to come back and talk to mom and dad about things. Uh, now, I know that that's a big dividing line in some circles, but I, I feel pretty strongly about that. And uh, I want my people in a safe place to hear hard questions uh, where they know that they can come and talk to me. Or, or hear something that I've wrestled with myself. I tell people sometimes that I'm not even sure I know it. I'm a little agnostic on on this. I, I don't know where I land yet, but let's talk about it, because that's okay. We, we, we can leave some things open-ended. Um, but, but one thing I wanted to say about um, uh, what Gray was talking about earlier about the doctrine of scripture, is that actually, as I was preparing for my class, I lifted off like a dozen reasons to uh, study the Septuagint. But in the end, it's really, what does this, what does this bit, this Septuagint bit have to do with my doctrine of scripture? You know, what, how does this affect that? Like, I think that there's a lot of questions there that, that tie back to that, uh, that tie back to, you know, what we uh say in, uh, you know, chapter one of Westminster, Um, you know, what, what are we doing with this? Mm. But it's definitely
2: a a good point to raise the, you know, our people in the pews are going to be exposed to like National Geographic documentaries on the canon or the Septuagint or, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know, the the various Jewish sects during the time Mm -hmm. of the New Testament writers. And and that's what they're going to be exposed to. And they're going to think that we don't have an answer when in fact we do. Uh, We may not preach it every Sunday, because that's not what we're trying to do. We, we're we trying to share the gospel, we're trying to disciple our people, and and they don't need to know about, you know, the intricacies of the Septuagint and, and things of that nature week to week to week. Now, you know, I mean, I don't know, there might be some congregations where pastors have the luxury to do that. Uh, I suspect they're extremely rare uh and uh and and i and i something else i mean i appreciated how uh, you mentioned that you know with all the work you do and the study you put in that it's given you the opportunity to be very efficient in your sermon prep you don't need to do you know 30 hours you can do it in 3 because you've learned the skills to be very effective and very and very yes, solid and 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 still be able to interact and, and give to the people what you think is healthy and reasonable and encouraging and mm-hmm. not dump, you know, uh, you know, your PhD program on them and, and, and there's wisdom to that. And but I do think it's an encouragement for uh for uh, ministers and you know future students here who are going into ministry that uh these things are important. You've gotta know it. Uh you may not have to deal with it every day, but you have got to know it. Uh your people are gonna ask, and if you don't, uh we are leaving them uh to the walls of secular media and and um, to, to train them and, and, and that can be uh, unhelpful. So yeah, thank you for that.
1: Yeah, I, and I, I will point that out in my sermon sometimes. I'm like, I'm sure you've seen on a highly sensationalized National Geographic or Discovery special that all pops up around Christmas and Easter, that such and such. And, and I feel like a little bit what, what my uh, experience has given me is the right to say, I know those people They're not as interesting as they seem on the TV show and the topics they're bringing up are not as, as stimulating as it really seems like it is or new. Um, These, these are very mundane. Uh, They're not that problematic. (laughs) It's just, they produce this into a certain way to get your attention. And, um, and the way they do that is through fear and doubt. And uh, there's actually not, there's not that uh, in in these questions. There's actually a much more logical and straightforward answer to this.
0: And then after the episode, they'll they'll follow it up with an episode on ancient aliens. You know?
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. With that so, dude with the hair. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. After yeah. they tell you what really happened in the Bible. Well, this, is, this has been a great conversation. I, I would say without being too self-serving, this kind of conversation that we're talking about now in terms of pastors being informed is one of the reasons why seminary is a great starting place for pastoral ministry. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't answer all of your questions, but Lord willing, it sets you off on a trajectory where you can have a life of study and learning. Even if you're not getting a PhD, right, but you're still staying in this material so that you do have a nuanced answer and you do, you can sit down with your congregation members who are having these questions. It's one of the reasons why starting in a formal setting where you're, we have good teachers who are walking you through the right questions. You talked about the importance of asking the right question, Aaron. And that's what I got out of seminary, and that's what, uh, that's what I hear from our students regularly, even the ones who've been in the pastorate for a long time, and they've come back because they realized that they didn't have the kind of depth that they needed. So for those of you interested in uh, hearing more about this, Dr. White will be joining us March 14th to 17th for a class on the Septuagint. So if you want to get more in-depth into not just the text itself, but the history of the text, how to read it, what it tells us. Um, and what its value is to us as we're interpreting and exegeting scripture. Um, I'd encourage you to sign up for this class. It's March 14th to 17th. So that's during our spring reading week here at RTS Washington. And we'd love to see you here. Thanks, Aaron, for joining us for this great conversation.
1: Yeah, thanks, guys, for having me. I know that there, we left a lot on the cutting room floor, as it is, but uh, or as it were. But um, uh, it was a fun conversation on on uh,
2: several different topics. So appreciate it all.
1: I think all it was a good more,
2: why all the more why they should take your class.
0: Yeah, 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 it was a good teaser. There there there's a lot of uh, a lot of food for thought. There's a good lot of teasers but you didn't get into the into the meat of it. So um we'll encourage them. Take the class. Everybody, thanks for joining me this week. And uh, if you have any questions for our podcast for us to answer at a later date, please go to the show notes and you'll find there a link to where you can submit that question. If you'd like to know more about RTS Washington or know more about this class on the Septuagint, go to rts.edu forward slash Washington and you can start that conversation with us as to how you can enroll either as a student or as an auditor, we'd love to see you around our campus here in DC. Thanks again, everybody, for being here. And until next week, take care.
4: I was fascinated
3: Aaron i you and I have very similar study habits is teaching. that right yeah i i I don't wait till Sunday because that's irresponsible but I, <laughs> but i i will I will confess that i usually my sermon doesn't get packaged until like right before you know this the day before um the research is done and and the the thesis is there but the final like putting it all together
1: yeah i i I was once told by an older pastor he says what's the uh similarity between the easter bunny santa claus and a sermon done on thursday he said none of them exist (laughs) 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 um so i mean yeah it's for me you gotta ask
0: have you ever gotten to a Sunday morning, you wake up and you have like a 103 fever and you are not in the right mindset to write the sermon that that would be my fear Is that I'd wake uh, up, something up would happen and I wouldn't be able to do it.
1: In my first year here, I woke up with a migraine. I was, I was just down for the count and I came over here. I, I, I'm not, I'm no sane. I, this has actually happened to me twice. I actually got my highest theology grade on a final a, in seminary while I was leaving the examination room every once in a while, because I thought I was going to you know lose my lunch because I had a migraine. <laughs> I, I think I got like a 99% on it. Um, but uh, I did this with my sermon. I actually literally used the pulpit to prop me up so that I could, preach that Sunday cause I just, I was like, who else is going to do it? There's nobody else that's ready to preach. Uh, now I have a whole slew of guys that could totally jump in and have no problem doing it. But um, no, yeah. I just, uh, I, I, here, here's the practical reason why I actually have written out my entire notes on Thursday or Friday. And I, I popped them open in front of me on Sunday morning. I had no idea what I was talking about in my notes. And so I, I just can't practically, yeah. um leave that much time in between that, i have to have it fresh
2: that is yeah. the problem with recycling sermons i mean uh, uh, whatever outline you may have prepped for a certain text five years ago made sense five years ago and and that's happened to me a number of times i'm looking at it now and 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 you know uh, you know i uh, you just look at it, you don't know exactly it's true what, yeah, what yeah. was i what was the point i mean why am i structuring it this yeah. way this is totally different than what I think is going on now.
0: This happened to me yesterday, and it reminded me that a sermon is a mind space. It's even if you write out word for word, sometimes I'll look at an old script and I'll go, What the heck am I talking about? This has nothing to do with this today, or it's an ancillary issue. You know, why am I touching on this? And it's it made so much sense, and it was a good sermon when it was first written, but I, well, I... It's, it's, I can't go back to
2: it. I've had the OP them. pastors come to me and say that their own congregations have asked them, you know what, look, uh, just read the thing and tell us what you think. And you don't, I mean, you know, don't give us, you know, this, you know, high ethereal type stuff. I mean, you've been trained, you know what, the, you know how to do this. You no. don't need to put, I mean, they uh, you know, at times, you know, you get the thing, you get a sense where, you know because our guys have been so well educated theologically exegetically languages interpretation that they um that they just want to impress and if they preach and they walk out and the people are just mesmerized with how smart you are, you've totally failed, and they don't see that you know mm. and um and uh, and and sometimes these texts don't take a lot of time to have to, uh, you know, the message is pretty darn clear. You yeah. Know? Mm. yeah. And uh, anyhow, I, I thank you, Aaron. I really appreciated your your thoughts on that. And I'll tell you, uh, uh, you know, I I I'm, I uh, myself also have all sorts of questions about Septuagint studies, and I would love to be able to sit in the class. I, I was really hoping you can give us maybe one of your twelve. Why should we study the Septuagint thing?
1: Oh. Uh. Well, yeah, that's what I, I kind of felt bad. I didn't get, I didn't get into a whole lot of substitution, but I will say this, here's, here's probably the reason why that I think it's the most like intriguing area of biblical studies at the moment is that there's just so much mystery. Can you guys hear me? All right. I hear my, uh, wonderful person, uh, cleaning outside my office. Um, there's so much mystery and I was, uh, I was thinking of it in terms of I'm watching the Anna Delvey, uh, like Netflix documentary movie type limited series. And the tagline of the series is this whole story is completely true, except for all the parts that are totally made up. Yeah. And I feel like that's a really good tagline for Septuagint Studies. Like there's just so much disagreement on what even terms mean and where things came from and why we should talk about it in certain ways and why should we should approach it in other ways. There's just so much baggage and so yeah. much, but more than baggage, so mystery that it just draws people in. Uh, it's like the moth to the flame. You just want to know more about what's yeah. going on because you. It's, it's hard to get behind uh, some of these texts. Like right now, I'm I'm commenting on the book of, on Judges out of Vaticanus, out of a diplomatic text. And um, I've decided to go with B text. And it was kind of because I came to the fork of the road and I had to take it, you know? I mean, A and B are so different. I mean, it's just, if you have uh, say Nets or something like that, a, a Septuagint translation will give you uh, both sides, look at the Song of Deborah. I mean, A and B are almost exactly opposite. Well, maybe not opposite, just different. And um, and so there's a lot of mystery
2: there. It's very intriguing. But you're talking no, about funny. A, a- and B. Go ahead, Peter. No, no, I will I'll keep my mouth shut. Are
0: you gonna talk about judges A and B though?
2: <laughs> I will concede to my academic dean. I was just gonna,
3: I was just fine. Find Peter. Uh, I, I was just going to say, say that w- the, the funny thing to me is when you find the Septuagint quoted in like commentaries and things like that, it's like he, Hebrews for me is, you know, he came up this weekend, you know, Hebrews is quoting the Septuagint here. And I mean, that statement just seems so simple to make, but it's mm-hmm. fraught with assumptions. Like you said, yeah. it, it, it assumes that there is this book there that Hebrews has, that, and he's opening it up, and reading from it and we know yeah. that that's not true so that's right you
2: know, so.
1: well and as an example um luke uses an alexandrian text type of septuagint um and and even just saying the septuagint is something we'll have to spend some time on uh working that out because then you have uh, you have some people who are saying, we need to scrap that word, don't use it anymore. Um, but other people are saying old Greek, like Scott was earlier, and um, he wasn't using it wrong, but a lot of other people will use it wrong. And um, and so, yeah, you, you you see people saying that, like I just published a, an article about a year ago in Adamantius, which is a, a journal in Italy on uh, origin Hexapla, And I was uh, drawing out of there uh, some... Some changes that were some revisions that were being made from uh, out of Theodosian, which is a recension or a new translation of the Septuagint, and I was saying some of this is actually even showing up in Luke Acts, and so we can't say it's uh, Luke is using an like Alexandrian text type because that's that's the wrong direction, you know. I, I, you know, so so there's just still so many questions, you know, but it's hard. Like if I'm looking at my Carson, you know, that started the whole whole discussion that big uh, commentary on the new testament uses of the old i think everybody has it it was like the cool book to get um yeah so like you you don't have time to say the septuagint and explain all of that stuff i mean it's, it's just yeah, yeah it's, it's a lot of work well there's the,
0: the thing for me that was really interesting is in the song of yeah. hannah in the masoretic text is one that uh uh, in, in a greek translation it's different enough emmanuel Tove makes the argument that it's got to be a different edition it's not just a text critical issue it's a different edition of the song of hannah but if you take the septuagint then it has a bunch of shared language with psalm 113 in the hebrew and the Magnificat. And so you have this like cool golden braid of poetry that starts with Hannah's song, goes to Song 113, and then to the Magnificat, right? Which is just awesome. You know, mm-hmm. I was so convinced by it that I made, when I was Dean of Students at RTS Orlando during Christmas, we read those three Psalms at our Christmas gathering. Mm-hmm. You know, those three songs, the song of Hannah, but it only works in the Septuagint, it doesn't work in the Hebrew. You know,
1: but but think think about what you just said. You just used it liturgically, and and that's why when we go to do text criticism of the Lord's Prayer, we have so many different, yep. um, you know, footnotes on it. Same thing with the Song of Deborah, um, or the, uh, or as you say, of Hannah, is that the, the, all those were being used liturgically, and that's why we have such vast, vastly different texts, is because is, they started being used in different regions according to different cultural and ethnic traditions, and and even though there was a shared religion as as such, it was it was used differently, and so you get different textual traditions out of out of that common text.
0: But then again, too, I also I think of this as a strength, and maybe it's because of my own kind of work in the Muslim world, but we didn't burn all the, the variants, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, the fact that you have variants means that you have a reading community that cares about the variants and believes that yep. there's an answer. And even yep. if we don't know the answer, you know, you don't always know every scientific answer either, but it doesn't mean that there's not an answer. You know, and so that's something I think. Like, you know, you see, you can tell your student uh, when they re- when they watch the the History Channel documentary on what the Bible really said. You can say, well, actually, here are the three options we have available. I'm not sure what the right answer is, but here are the three options. And then once they kind of yeah. see it laid out, and they realize it's not brand new, and that they're it's just a it's just a quandary. It's not that it's a contradiction. It's just a it's a question. You know,
1: and it takes it, it takes effort and foresight to keep uh the different readings as well because it might be like what happens with origin the hexapla or uh jerome and his hebraica veritas that people just stop using the other stuff and yeah. they all just disappear and that's why we have all this mystery of well what did the text actually say originally um yeah. you know and and then actually finding out that we're not too far off from what it was originally so yeah. uh thanks to qumran discoveries and things of the sort uh Chira Geniza and so on
2: but
0: Well, as is often the case, our best conversation was off recording, so...